if you're reading with us through, through the Bible, reading the story, which is a abridged version of the NIV Bible, and it shares the big picture story of the people of God. And this is a story that we have to become familiar with because every day we're being discipled into a different story by every other thing we look at. We are. We're being discipled by everything we look at into a different narrative than the story of God. And we're so far removed from ancient Israel and all this stuff that we feel, um, you know, we lose sight of what, what is God doing in the world? What, is, what has he done? What is he doing? What does it mean for me today? It was great hearing from people talking about the workplace and, and sharing God in the workplace and encouragement in the workplace because that's a, that's a place that in, in, in Western Christianity became an untouched zone of, you know, this, this is work and this is church. This is work and this is my spiritual life. But truly, you work like eight to ten hours a day, maybe more, maybe less, and this is like your, your prime real estate of your life. Like your work, your, your, this is your ministry, this is your calling, you know? It's not all about what we do in the church to participate in the body here, but what we do in, in the workplace, and it's so, it's so important to realize that. Um, so yeah, we're, we're in the story, we're in just, a, just a, if I was to outsource, you know, two sermons, Joshua and Judges are tough books. They're tough books. You know, it's, it's a story of God's covenant faithfulness um, to a people that are stubborn and stiff-necked and wicked many times. To a nation he's trying to keep from being influenced by, by, by the wickedness of the world, but they become just as warped in their own humanity as the, as, as the quote-unquote enemies of God, if you will. Um, the story of, of Judges is a story like that. Um, but God, I, I'm convinced that the thing, I don't know if you're like me, but as I'm reading Joshua and Judges, as I trust all of you are right now in the story, um, I think to myself, is this really, is this, God knew that this stuff was going to happen, right? We read in Genesis, he prophesied to Abraham about the Egyptian slavery. He knew that was going to happen. He knew that they were going to be delivered 400 years before it happened. But is this story really God's best? What, like, what could have been? This is the mysterious th- things I think about. Because, um, you know, is it determined, like nothing could have changed this story, how it, how it turned out? Or is it just something that was kind of etched in stone? Uh, because the things I read about from God, on God's end, the covenants of God, are just, his desires were so much better than what happened. So much better, you know? The covenants he made with Abraham, with Isaac, Jacob, with David, with the, 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 the Levitical priesthood, his vision for the world was not a bloodbath. It was, uh, like in Isaiah 11, the lion laying with the lamb and a little child leading them, a peaceable kingdom. And, I, and, I, and we know that in heaven, there's not going to be violence and bloodshed and sin. It's going to be a place where the old order of things has passed away. The old has gone, the new has come. There will be no more tears, no sickness, no crying, no pain, no strife, uh, no awkward Thanksgiving dinners with your family, no, um, no polarization, uh, no, certainly no, no bloodshed. It will be a peaceable kingdom where the lion dwells with the lamb. But from, from the beginning, these covenants that God shared with his people, this has always been his desire. But it's only through Christ we realize when we read through Joshua and Judges that this is going to be realized. It's not going to be. It's going to be a descendant of King David from, from, from Israel, Jesus Christ, who's going to make this happen. This is, this is how 
Israel's going to become a blessing to all nations through Jesus and what Jesus does. Because on their own, it, it often doesn't go very well. It often doesn't go very well. I was talking to Elias in the car, my, my eight-year-old, and I said, well, if you could have any pet in the world, what would it be? And he goes, a Tyrannosaurus Rex. And I said, that's really cool, but like, they're carnivores. He would eat you. And Elias goes, um, well, not in heaven. I'd have, my, I'd have him as a pet in heaven because the animals are at peace with humans in heaven. And I was like, that's pretty good theology, kid. It's not bad. But the, po- the point is, you know, this, the covenants that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even with all of God's foreknowledge of how things would go awry, such a beautiful vision. And the thing for us, would, would there be a tragedy in reading through Joshua and Judges is if we, um, we looked at what the people did and we said, oh, this, is, this was God's will. No, this was, this was bad. God knew it was going to happen, but it was bad. And now, but now, for us in Christ, who are living on this side of the cross, this side of the new covenant in Christ's blood, there's a foolproof plan that God has made to create the, his vision that was from the beginning, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, a people belonging to God who call forth his praises and who, where everyone in the church functions as a priest. So like in Israel, there was a priest that, from the Levites that ministered before God on behalf of the people. So he was an intermediary. And now, but God's, God's real will was that we'd be a kingdom of priests where we'd all be intermediaries between God and the world. So the very thing that God does for us, we then go out and do for other people, you know? That's a pretty cool vision. Listen to these covenants. I'm gonna, uh, the first covenant God made was with, with Noah, and uh, he promised not to destroy the world with a flood ever again. So we know that covenant. In Genesis 12, here, I'm going to read a few of these covenants he made with Abraham and then with Moses. In Genesis 12, 2 and 3, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of earth will be blessed through you. Genesis 15, 18 to 20. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants, I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Genesis 17, 4. As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. That's a people. You will no longer be called Abraham. Your name will be Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I've made you the father of many nations. I'll make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And I will be their God. Now Moses in Exodus 19, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Though the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you speak to the Israelites. So all these covenants God made, uh, with, with first with Noah, then with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the priesthood of Aaron, with, with King David, as we'll see in the future, they assure God's people, generation after generation, that God has a certain special kind of love called 
covenant love that he has with the people. And it's an unbreakable covenant love based on his loving kindness towards human beings. And what, what we see in time and time again through history is that God is fully faithful to his covenant, no matter how bad things get, as in the, the missteps of the books of Joshua and Judges, uh, some of the things that happened in those books that were just kind of horrible. Uh, God is faithful over those hundreds of years to his people as they go in these, these cycles that we're very familiar with of, of sinning, of crying out to God, of, be, of, of getting the consequences of our sin, crying out to God in captivity, being delivered and restored by God over and over and over again. But God's desire through, through all of these covenants is very clear. All the people on earth will be blessed. I will be their God, they will be my people, and they, they will be a kingdom of priests. And right now we have all the tools we need in our tool belt to, to live out this kingdom vision of God. We really do. We really do. Jesus said it best when he shared these two commands, which he said the law and the prophets were all summed up with. When he said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor, including your enemy, as yourself. How simple is that? God's, God's kingdom vision was really relatively simple. Love God, love others, be a kingdom of priests, you know, be, be a blessing to the world. I mean, God, God's heart and plan were very simple. But boy, oh boy, was God's plan derailed, not really derailed, but seemingly derailed by the human sin of his people in the pages of uh, books like Joshua and Judges. But the clue for, our, for the future of this story is that because of Advent, because Jesus came as the king at Christmas, those simple desires of God to be his people, to be priests for other, peop- uh, for other people to come to know God, to be a blessing to all the nations, can come true in Christ and have come true in Christ. We have everything we need in Christ now to be this priesthood God has dreamed of from the beginning of Genesis to the end of the Bible and Revelation. But really, many things, uh, many of the things we see in Canaan and uh, in, in the Promised Land, in the book of Judges and Joshua, um, are the results of the sin of God's people. Um, Abraham Lincoln, in his second inaugural, inaugural address, I'm going to knock this over. He did a really masterful thing uniting the North and the South, and I'm simplifying this, but I'm fascinated by Lincoln. He, he said to everybody, not, ha-ha, we win, you know, the North beats the South. He said, this war, this civil war, was a judgment of God on all of us for our sins of slavery. And that's how, he's, that's how he reconciled everybody. Not to say that it worked completely, but really these, this war in Canaan that happened, the conquest of the, of the Holy Land, all, all this was in many ways a judgment for the sins of the people that had been committed um, way beforehand in the land. Abraham was a man of peace, the first recipient of the covenant. Abraham was not a man of war. In fact, Abraham goes out of his way in his dealings, to, to deal justly. He even surrenders his own legitimate rights to his uh, brother-in-law and gives him the best of the land. You know, Abraham is a man of peace. He used his status as God's called one to uh, intercede for the nations around him, to bless them. That's what Abraham did. But after that time of Abraham, human sin got continually worse with every generation. 
And in Genesis 34, we see the seeds of what happened in Canaan. It's, it's this dark story about Jacob, who is later renamed Israel, uh, his sons, and his daughter. Israel, Jacob, had a daughter named Dinah. And she was attacked and raped by uh, people in uh, the Hivite people, this guy named Shechem. And Jacob, Israel, is trying to figure out a peaceable solution to this thing. He's, he's talking to them. You know, he, probably his first impulse was to kill this guy, I imagine. He's the father of this girl. Uh, but he's trying to f- figure out a peaceable solution, but to bring about justice. But Israel's sons hatch a plan to get revenge for their sisters, uh, what, what happened to their sister, which we understand that impulse, but this is literally an overkill event that happens. So what they do is, you know, Shechem, this guy that did this thing to their sister, said, I want her to be my wife, and uh, I will pay you whatever bride price you want. I want to make this right, you know, as if that was possible. And so Israel's sons deceived Shechem, and they said, okay, we're, we're good. We're going to intermarry with your people. We're going to become, you're going to become part of our people. We'll marry your people. You marry our people. The Hivites and the Israelites will be friends. But the, the only thing you have to do is become circumcised, which is the sign of the, the holy sign of the covenant that God used to set his people apart. All you have to do is be circumcised. Unfortunately, uh, for, for the Hivites, uh, after they had gone through with this, uh, Jacob's sons attacked and killed not only the Shechem, but everyone in that city and took away the plunder and the women and everything you can imagine. Um, bad, a bad situation. And it says, three days later, while all of them were still in pain, as you would be, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. Now, that's overkill. That's not eye for an eye. That's body for an eye, you know? They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. Then Jacob, Israel, said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and the Perizzites the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. This whole overkill situation of trying to, trying to bring about justice in a deceptive way, and especially using the sacred covenant of, of circumcision to trick these people, while it was a smart idea, it was certainly overkill. Uh, we understand the need for justice, but, but uh, these, these sons brought upon Jacob lots and lots of trouble, and notably... They brought, they, they, it made this situation where the Canaanites were now enemies of Israel, like bitter enemies. And that's, a, that's something that lasted through generations and generations of hatred and really created a situation where everyone in the promised land was hostile to Israel. So I wonder to myself, was the whole, was the whole situation in Canaan when everyone you know, was, had, was obliterated by God's army, a judgment on everyone for the sin, like Abraham Lincoln said of the sin of slavery. If you, if you look at the story of, of Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, they march around the city walls seven times blowing trumpets. And the, the seventh time, seventh day, 
seven days, I'm sorry. On the seventh day, they shout and the walls come down. And God says, everything in this city needs to be devoted to destruction, which is the same exact thing God says of the, uh, the spotless lamb sacrifice of atonement. Like everything needs to be burned up and destroyed here. And I really think in this situation, you know, because of the sin of Israel's sons against the people of Canaan, that created this bitter feud, everything in that city had to be destroyed. But I, I don't think that this overkill and this, this, uh, this plan was, was um, ha- had to happen the way it did. But because of human sin, you understand, it got really bad. How would it have played out? If you look at the other, the other stories of Israel, you know, they, if you, there's a great story in the book of Judges of Gideon, and he basically smashes jars and blows trumpets, and the enemy takes care of themselves. There's not even any attack from Israel's army. How much more could the Promised Land event have just been a coming in, maybe integrating people into Israel, blessing them, pushing them out? But because of the way things have been historically, uh, this, this, this judgment this on, on, on Canaan and on Israel uh, played out in this way. And once we get to the book of Judges, this is certainly a low point for God's people because it talks about all these leaders of God's people, but it talks about their, the flaws that they had. So Joshua said in Joshua 24, Fear the Lord and serve him. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Everyone says, yes, we're going to do it. Everyone agrees to it. But then the book of Judges is right after that, and it shows the failure of God's people to do that, even to a small extent. These judges that God raised up, they were not perfect people. Uh, There were 12 of them. But God raised them up because of his covenant love for his people in order to relieve them of their suffering when uh, when their punishment, when the consequences of their sin became unbearable for them. He heard their cries. He raised up a judge. And as long as the judge was living... There is peace in the land. But all these judges have severe uh, flaws that we're going to see. The phrase that gets repeated over and over again in the book is uh, this phrase, In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And that's a really dismal sentence, and that's the, re- that's the refrain of the whole book, like over and over again, right to the very last chapter. These horrible stories of things that happened. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. There's no longer a Moses. There's no longer a Joshua leading the people. As soon as Joshua's dead, they pretty much, they, they ask God about one thing, and they have success in one battle. After that, they stop asking God about anything. That's the end of that. And, uh, you know, the, 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 spiral, the spiral of 350 years of, of what feels like a needless wandering, much like the, de- the wilderness wandering of the Israelites, happens. They rebel against God. They worship false gods in all the ways that people worship false gods. Human sacrifice, um, temple prostitutes, all the stuff that you hear about that God was trying to prevent from happening. Uh, They rebel. They become under bondage to an enemy, like in Egypt, and they they receive consequences for their sin. And even, even that consequence is a loving gesture of God to try to make it bad enough that they'll turn back to him wholeheartedly. They cry out to God in repentance, and God raises up a judge and restores them, restores them. It plays out this way in Judges 2. It says, Joshua, son of Nun, in, in verse 8, 
A servant of the Lord died at the age of 110, not bad. They buried him in the land of his inheritance at timnath Hires in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. So we should really keep on talking about what God is doing because look how quickly they forgot God. So here's the rebellion. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashereths. And that's, that's a real ugly thing. That's child sacrifice. That's temple prostitutes. That's a lot of oppression, a lot of bad stuff. So here's the consequences. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Remember when God was in charge and guiding stuff, they didn't have to do hardly anything. Just watch God do it. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was actually against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Here's the, here's the repentance and the restoration. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of their hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their predecessors, their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors, has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. This is really sad it's a really sad story. In slavery in Egypt, wandering in the wilderness, whining about food and drink, finally they get to the promised land, and, and now the, the best that God can bring out of this situation for them is to say, I'm going to let the people live here so that they can continue to keep these, my people on track. For disciplinary purposes, we'll leave these Canaanites here, and when my people rebel against me, I'll let them be taken into captivity in the hopes that they'll cry out to me, and maybe this time they'll follow my ways. Again, uh, this, is a, this is a major complication of God's original vision of his covenants. He wanted a people for himself that would be his treasured possession. He would be their God, they would be his people, and through those people, the rest of the earth and the other nations of the world would be blessed by the God who called Israel. But they just kept going rebellion, consequence, repentance, Restoration, rebellion. This is a cycle that happens for us as modern-day people, too. We have to be aware. Like, you can really spin your tires for quite a large length of your life. Um, and God is so gracious, he's not going to forsake you. But, you know, it, what, what a loss to not really ever experience the joy of being a, the, the priest of God and to live out this vision God had. 
the, the amazing part of the whole Judges story for me is that for 350 years, God, in this endless cycle of spiraling sin that people had, forgetting God's ways and forgetting God, he always still heard their groaning. And he raised up these chieftains, these tribal chiefs, these judges, to give them respite from the consequences of their own sin, even though they turned against God again and again after that. But for 350 years, until Israel's first king, King Saul, comes along, God is completely faithful to his people, even as they break his covenant. So the judges that God raised up, I don't know if they were the best of the best, but uh, if you read their stories, some of them start really well. Some of them are just a train wreck all the way through. But God uses them by his spirit to lovingly keep his people intact and to hear in response to the groaning and suffering of his people. So you will be reading about that in your readings this week. One of, one of, the, one of the best sermons I think I ever heard was a, story, a sermon about Gideon. And there's so much good in the story of Gideon. I encourage you, you know, this is a really dismal sermon, right? But read the story of Gideon and see some of the things that God did in him. You know, God saw Gideon in a wine press threshing wheat, which is not smart because you're supposed to do it on a hill so that the wind separates the wheat from the chaff. He's in a wine press for fear. And the angel of the Lord comes up to him and says, you're a mighty man of valor. You are God's man, Gideon. God had this beautiful vision for Gideon's life. And God led Gideon through this process of building him up and, and working with him and, and, and answering his prayers, even when he was almost becoming obnoxious in his repetition of prayers and seeking more assurances from God. God worked with him and loved him so well. And God led him into this amazing victory. Gideon had a, an army of 32,000 fighting men. And God winnowed them down through these different processes to the point where only the 300 um, of the okay guys were left, I guess. And from those 300, he goes, you know, God, God kept saying, let's, let's winnow this number down because if they win with a certain number of guys, then they're going to say, we did this. And they need to know that I did this. So Gideon uh, has these folks here, these 300 people, and they're, they're in the city of Midian, and um, they end up smashing these jars and blowing trumpets, and God causes the enemy to just take care of themselves, turn, turn on each other in confusion. And Gideon's army did, of 300 did nothing. You can learn a lot from that story. It's very much like the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. God took care of the Egyptians. And that was kind of the message, I will take care of these things, right? But the story of Gideon doesn't end well. Gideon goes off the rails, which I didn't hear in the great sermon I heard about him. But he, um, he ends up murdering several of his own people because they didn't help him enough with his conquest after his leadership is challenged. Then he demands that people give him gold. And he melts it down and makes himself an ephod like a priest would wear. He's kind of going loony. And then uh, people start worshiping the ephod and saying, this is the thing that brought us up out, that delivered Midian into our hands. And then Gideon dies, and they worship this golden shrine in the next generation. That's what they do. So this amazing thing that God did became this piece of gold that's shaped like a priestly ephod is our God who delivered us. That's rough. And then when a judge like Gideon died, the people returned to worse ways than their uh, predecessors. 
Now, there's lots of great things to learn from the story of Gideon, and I think if I was preaching through this book, I would take some time. But uh, my point is that God's faithfulness, despite the judge's unfaithfulness, was, was remarkable. But kept on leading the people through these, through these cycles. The hardest, uh, the hardest story, and there's, you know, there's the story of Samson, which is uh, very train-wrecky all the way through, but interesting. And God uses Samson to deliver his people, despite Samson's uh, disregard for the holy in his life. Um, but in Judges 19, we see the final story of, of Judges. I'm sorry. Yes, in, in, in Judges 19, we see the final story of Judges, which is almost a, an exact repeat of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah from Genesis 19. So here's how the story goes in the end of Judges. A Levite priest of God takes on a concubine, which is wrong for priests to do. She cheats on him then goes back to her father's house. The Levite priest, again, this is one of God's people, his priests, goes and gets her, but stops in a town called Gibeah for the night. Remember the Gibeonites that Joshua made a treaty with? As they were staying in this, the host's house in Gibeah, the men of Gibeah gather outside the door and demand the Levite man to be put out so they can have sex with him. Instead, the host sends out his own daughter and the concubine of the Levite. And the next day, the Levite, who's in the, again the priestly line of God, takes his concubine's body home, breaks into 12 pieces, and sends it to the 12 tribes. And his whole point was to rally everyone to fight against the tribe of Benjamin in Gibeah, who he held responsible for this atrocity. And so now we have civil war, God's people fighting each other. And they almost wipe out the entire line of Benjamin, except for 600 men. This is not a good story. And right after the story of the crooked Levite priest, the book of Judges ends with this sentence. In Judges 21, 24, At that time the Israelites left the place and went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. is not a good ending. This is not God's kingdom vision or what he envisioned when he made these covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and with us through Christ. This is not what God had in mind and probably all of this violence was brought about because of human sin. Because of the consequences falling on people for generations of infighting and hatred. But still through that all we're, again we are not exalting these, these, we're not going to exalt the people in the book of Judges and say they were great. We should learn leadership from them. I'm not going to. Through all this, God wanted, God, God looks really good and people look really bad. Because God's vision never changed. He wanted the people for himself who would love him, who would love other people, who would be a blessing to other nations, not curse, who would mediate his presence to other nations and through them to bless the entire world. And what we learn from the book of Judges and Joshua is that with people, this is impossible. But for 350 years, God kept working with his people because God had a plan to send a true king of a peaceable kingdom to answer the cries of his people. And that king's name is Jesus Christ. From a descendant of these people, in the book of Judges, 
Jesus Christ, whose advent we celebrate this month. And every time Israel groaned about this or that, lack of water in the desert, or lack of meat, or they groaned about their oppressors, or they groaned for a judge or, or, a, or a king, that's what we're going to hear next week, the refrain, the desire for a king, what they were really groaning for was Jesus the Messiah. That is who they were looking towards, the perfect king to come and deliver them, not just from a few enemies, but from the power of sin and death, from the punishment of sin, the consequences of sin, and from the abandonment that everyone experiences. Even, even 1,350 years before Jesus' week would come, we are in Judges now, teed up for the hope of the gospel, which is really good news. The fulfillment of God's original promise and covenant with Israel for salvation through Christ. And today, on this side of the cross, we look back to what Jesus did 2,000 years later. They looked forward to it 1,350 years in the future. We have all the tools we need for our tool belt to be the people of God. Because to us New Testament church believers, we have our marching orders. In 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen people. This is to Gentiles. This is not just Israel anymore. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. God is good through everything that happens in the scriptures. He's faithful. We can get caught up in that same cycle as them, though, can't we? Sin, rebellion, consequences, crying out, spinning our wheels forever. But God, we can do this. This is, this is the call of our church. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, it's such a good context to read these difficult stories um, for us to really appreciate Jesus. We are likewise crying out, crying out for a king, crying out for someone to set things right. We're crying out for deliverance from our sins. I thank you, Lord, that you hear and have always heard the groans and cries of your people and that you've done something about it. That the true King Jesus is not only uh, risen and came and rose again, defeating sin and death, but he is now the Lord of this church. You're the God of our church, the God of every church that claims Jesus. And I pray that our church, along with all the other churches um, that, that call in the name of Christ, that we would be able to live out your vision to bring shalom, to bring peace to this world, to be people that mediate your presence and let people know that you came for them as well. That we might be a blessing to all nations as you intended and desired. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dispersed. Go and be the church.